Johnson and Vallis rally to turn out voters on the runoff's final weekend. And I'll talk with Crane's healthcare reporter, Catherine Davis, about proposed state legislation that would tighten hospital merger rules amid concerns from patients and lawmakers. That provider consolidation often raises prices for consumers, while care quality worsens or remains stagnant. So the fundamental change is just that the AG is going to be involved in this now and how much that affects like the rate at which we see deals being done greatly depends on how aggressively the AG wants to implement the law. I'm Amy Guth and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Tuesday, April 4th. Rest easy knowing your business's savings are secure and earning more with a Wintrust MaxSafe account. With MaxSafe, you'll get up to 15 times more than the standard FDIC protection. That's right, 15 times more protection with the ability to secure up to $3.75 million per account holder. Now that's banking as it should be. Call 833-MAX-SAFE to talk with a local Wintrust banker today. That's 833-MAX-SAFE. Peace of mind is just a phone call away. Banking products provided by Wintrust Financial Corporation Banks. Member FDIC. See FDIC.gov for deposit insurance coverage rules. I'm joined by Crane's healthcare reporter, Catherine Davis, here to talk about some recent reporting. So, Catherine, you've been taking a look at how Illinois lawmakers are looking to tighten merger rules amid some pricing and quality concerns. Tell me about that. So back in mid-March, the Illinois General Assembly in the House passed some legislation uh, that's looking to add sort of additional steps to the hospital merger and acquisition approval process here in Illinois. The bill is HB 2222, and it actually originated in a t- Illinois Attorney General Kwame Raoul's office. He's you know, come out and sort of been pretty vocal about the fact that he wants there to be more oversight over these types of deals in Illinois. And now we're seeing this legislation that he helped craft move forward. And so essentially what the bill is calling for is you know, for the AG to be involved in this approval process. So far, under the current rules, you know, if hospitals in Illinois want to merge or buy each other, they just have to take the deal to the Illinois Health Facilities and Services Review Board, which approves these kinds of transactions, but also regulates things just like the openings and closings of hospitals. The additional step hospitals have to take is at the federal level where they take it to antitrust agencies, think like the Federal Trade Commission. But generally, the federal agencies are only looking at deals of a certain size. So if it's, you know, a small deal, a small hospital, the feds just may overlook it. As we know, they're overburdened. They are monitoring deals across the country and usually looking at much bigger things. And so this legislation now is headed to the Illinois Senate. They are expected to approve it. And then from there, it would go to Governor J.B. Pritzker, who's also expected to approve it. And if all that happens, this law would take effect at the beginning of next year, January 1st, 2024. Okay. And, And essentially, this would modify a couple of existing things. It would modify the Illinois Antitrust Act, the State Finance Act, and the Illinois Health Facilities Planning Act. That's a lot of red tape. 
Yeah. And so, you know, the main changes there um, would, would basically require healthcare organizations to notify the attorney general's office within 30 days of a proposed merger or acquisition. In the original writing of the bill, lawmakers were looking to make this a 60-day requirement with some input from industry stakeholders like the Illinois Health and Hospital Association. The bill going forward now is only requiring 30 days of notification. I think that's important to point out. Mm -hmm. But the other thing about amending these existing statutes is that under this new law, the AG would also have an opportunity to request additional information about a deal that would help him or her you know, determine whether this transaction requires further investigation or requires requesting additional information to find out how this impacts Illinois consumers uh, from a competitive standpoint. And you said that this originates from Attorney General Kwame Rowell's office. Was this a result of consumer feedback or hospital concerns? You know, I'm, I'm thinking of the timing here as we have kind of growing criticism around healthcare consolidation and that that's such a big conversation. I wonder, you know, what was stakeholder involvement on that? First of all, to sort of step back, we've been having this conversation about what healthcare consolidation does to prices and quality, not just here in Illinois, but across the country. Even at the federal level under the FTC in President Joe Biden's administration, the FTC has blocked many hospital mergers recently just over these concerns that, you know, once healthcare organizations combine, they gain more bargaining power over insurance plans, over consumers, and effectively can raise their prices to whatever they want if they, you know, maybe are the only healthcare provider in, in a certain area. And so I think, you know, the AG has certainly been in tune with these conversations that are happening on the national stage and just wanted to make sure that, you know, Illinois was taking a look at this as well. The interesting thing is that from the stakeholders in the industry, like the associations and stuff, they, of course, wanted a say in what this legislation will look like as it affects their members greatly. But, you know, they definitely pushed back against the narrative that consolidation is bad for patients. They say in a lot of cases, you know, hospital consolidation, mergers and acquisitions can help them you know, balance their budget can help them grow and can, you know, in some cases actually help them provide better care if they're not strapped for cash, which I think can make sense in some in some situations. But, you know, the research is pretty clear that consolidation does, in fact, increase prices, though it is more mixed on the quality outcomes. It does increase prices. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a growing body of research, including, you know, a paper from the Kaiser Family Foundation, which is among the most respected yeah. uh, healthcare organizations. And, you know, they're saying that oftentimes we're seeing prices raised for the consumers and the insurance plans. Right. That, that narrative is usually very present when we see a merger announced or, or an acquisition. It's usually all about, oh, this will create synergies. This will be a cost savings. I feel like that's one of the first points that always gets hammered. Exactly. You know, we saw that in the Advocate Aurora Health and Atrium merger that happened last year. I remember interviewing the CEOs the day they announced it and they're like, yeah, you know, this is going to help us provide better care because we're going to have more resources. You know, together we're stronger, together we can make more money, et cetera. But, you know, at the time there were a lot of concerns raised about whether the deal was necessary and, you know, 
what it would do to consumer prices. You know, I think even just here in Illinois, we saw the Illinois Health Facilities and Services Review Board. They rejected the Advocate Atrium deal at first before reconsidering and then approving it later. But, you know, in that process, they asked for additional information. And even after they approved it, there were regulators who said they were still unsure or felt like they didn't have enough information to really validate and justify the merger itself. And then as for healthcare organizations, you know, you you mentioned a lot of stakeholder feedback. How would this fundamentally change the process other than that notification period for the AG's office if there was consolidation happening? Would it fundamentally change that process so much? Would it just be one extra step? Would it add a lot of time and cost to it? What does that look like? So the fundamental change is just that the AG is going to be involved in this now. Yeah. And how much that affects like the rate at which we see deals being done greatly depends on how aggressively the AG wants to implement the law. Okay. That's that's what a uh, corporate attorney told me here in Chicago that focuses on the healthcare sector. You know, he was like, even at the FTC or at the federal level, you know, all of these laws like you don't really know what impact they'll have until you see how regulators want to use them. So here in Illinois, you know, I mean, if the AG wanted to request, you know, a thousand documents every time someone wanted to do a deal, obviously that would slow down the process and create sort of more of a burden for these healthcare organizations looking to combine. But, you know, it's possible that he doesn't or she doesn't request that much or question that much. And then, you know, deals kind of go through at a similar pace that they're happening now. So it creates an additional burden that hospitals have to comply with, but it's not expected at this point that it will materially slow down the rate at which we see those transactions. Okay. So the timeline that you mentioned, it's under consideration at the Senate. A vote is expected at the end of April. So if if it goes through, that would go into effect starting in 2024. Mm-hmm. And the one thing I'll add about the impact here is that, you know, that same attorney I just mentioned, I asked him, you know, do you think that if this law had been in place when Advocate and Atrium were looking to merge, would the outcome have been different? Mm. And he says that it's unlikely just because that deal already did go through a lot of scrutiny, both here at the local level and at the federal level. And don't forget that, you know, on the atrium side, they had to go through a similar process just in North Carolina, um, where their attorney general was actually pretty critical of the deal. And so, you know, just adding this one extra step with the AG in Illinois probably wouldn't have changed the outcome of that deal. I think that's worth pointing out and sort of gives, gives a sense for like what the impact is here. I think where we may see this new rule have a more significant impact is on the smaller deals in Illinois. You know, when it's maybe just a independent hospital being acquired or merging with another independent hospital, that kind of thing, those deals don't really make it to the federal level anyways, Mm -hmm. just because they're too small. And so, you know, having this extra step with the AG could likely help give more oversight to those kinds of deals specifically. Well, it'll be another one of those kind of wait and see. We'll have to wait and see if it uh, if it passes and and goes into effect and how that will will impact folks. But I know you will be all over it and keep us in the loop. Thanks so much, Catherine. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Amy. Coming up, McDonald's closes down its U.S. offices this week in advance of layoffs. We'll talk about that and more right after this. 
Crane's Audio Studio presents Four Star Stories, The Felonious Adventures of a Chicago Mole, a four-part series reported by Albie Galoon. This is a story about second and third chances. It's about a brash dealmaker who helped the feds convict a Chicago alderman in Tony Resco, a fundraiser for former Governor Rod Blagojevich. He's the kind of guy where lawyers say, man, if this guy flew straight, he would really be something. John Thomas, a real estate investor who worked undercover for the FBI, has been called a serial con man by federal prosecutors. He says he changed his ways after a trip to prison. But has he? Some people just have the grift in them. They can't get it out of them. They were born with it. I mean, they were stealing penny candies when they were, you know, six years old. The Felonious Adventures series is produced by Crane's Audio Studio as part of Four Star Stories, Crane's ongoing effort to tell the story of Chicago's past, present, and future through the voices of the people who live and work here. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform to hear The Felonious Adventures of a Chicago Mole, available now. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. Crane's Justin Lawrence reported that with both campaigns agreeing that Tuesday's mayoral runoff election will be close, Cook County Commissioner Brandon Johnson and former Chicago Public Schools CEO Paul Vallis appeared throughout the city this weekend, pushing supporters toward the polls. Lawrence noted in reporting that well below 50 percent of the electorate is expected to cast a vote in Tuesday's election, and the potential for inclement weather on Tuesday could dampen turnout even further. But standing in packed arts centers, daycare event halls, and campaign headquarters, Johnson and Vallis each told supporters they had the key to unlocking the city's potential while hammering their opponents' policies as being too extreme. On Saturday, Vallis spent the day in areas of the city in which he fared well during the February 28th primary, the 45th, 11th, and 23rd wards, telling dedicated supporters to make sure they don't let their friends and family members sit on the sidelines. Meanwhile, also on Saturday morning inside an arts center, Lawrence noted that Massachusetts Congresswoman Ayanna Presley introduced Johnson to a shoulder-to-shoulder crowd by assuring them, quote, organized power is realized power. Both candidates spent Sunday morning being escorted to primarily black churches by popular politicians they've been endorsed by in an effort to appeal to voters who likely originally supported either businessman Willie Wilson or Mayor Lori Lightfoot. Former Secretary of State Jesse White made good on his early endorsement of Alice, appearing at two events Sunday, while Chicago Treasurer Melissa Conyers Irvin campaigned for Johnson after spending the last Sunday during the primary whipping up support for outgoing Mayor Lori Lightfoot. Find more in-depth reporting and analysis about Chicago's mayoral runoff election this week at chicagobusiness.com. Bloomberg reported, citing a person familiar with the case, that Google co-founder Sergey Brin, Thomas Pritzker, chairman of Hyatt Hotels and relative of Governor J.B. Pritzker, Michael Ovitz, who co-founded the Creative Artists Agency and briefly served as president of Walt Disney, and property developer Mortimer Zuckerman, who's a former owner of the New York Daily News, were all subpoenaed as part of a lawsuit against J.P. Morgan Chase over its ties to Jeffrey Epstein. Bloomberg reported that the businessmen were served with information requests by lawyers representing the U.S. Virgin Islands, which claims J.P. Morgan knowingly benefited financially from Epstein's sex trafficking scheme. 
For background, the U.S. Virgin Islands and an unidentified Epstein victim both sued J.P. Morgan last year. Epstein was a client of the bank between 1998 and 2013, and the suits focus on Epstein's relationship with Jess Staley, the former head of J.P. Morgan's private bank, whom the plaintiffs claim had knowledge of his client's criminal activities. The bank has argued that it didn't know or participate in Epstein's sex trafficking venture, and just weeks ago, a federal court judge dismissed some of the claims but failed to throw out allegations that the bank benefited financially from the venture. J.P. Morgan has also sued Staley, arguing he should be held liable for any damages stemming from the suits. J.P. Morgan Chief Executive Officer Jamie Dimon has also agreed to take part in a deposition, despite lawyers initially arguing he had no involvement in decisions about Epstein's accounts. Crane's Danny Ecker reported that the owner of the Signature Room restaurant near the top of the former John Hancock Center has put the property on the market, an offering that will measure investor appetite for high-end dining real estate along the Mag Mile as effects of the pandemic fade. A venture led by New York-based Madison Capital and Newark, New Jersey-based PGIM Real Estate has hired brokers in the Chicago office of Cushman and Wakefield to sell the just over 26,000-square-foot restaurant space on the 95th and 96th floors of the tower at 875 North Michigan Avenue. There's no formal asking price for the property, which includes the Signature Room restaurant as well as the Signature Lounge cocktail bar just above it. Ecker noted in reporting that the listing comes as North Michigan Avenue works to regain its footing in the wake of the COVID-19 public health crisis. Selling the Signature Room property could be challenging against that backdrop and amid growing fears of an economic downturn. But Cushman and Wakefield is playing up the restaurant's unique offering that consistently draws visitors as well as the property's state cash flow given that Signature Room's operator recently extended its lease for the property by 10 years and is now committed to the space through the end of 2031, according to a marketing flyer. Ecker noted in reporting that Chicago-based Infusion Management Group has operated the Signature Room since the restaurant opened in 1993, and the restaurant's average annual sales would rank it among the 10 highest-grossing independent restaurants in Chicago, also according to the flyer. Infusion has a triple net lease for the property, meaning that it covers maintenance and other expenses like taxes and insurance, and reportedly also recently invested $1.5 million in renovations to the space. The Signature Room offering comes as the roughly 900,000-square-foot office portion of the tower undergoes big changes. Chicago real estate investor Hearn is converting a portion of that space into medical offices as remote work continues to transform the traditional office sector and as demand for clinical space climbs around the Streeterville medical area. Ecker also reported, citing information from real estate information company CoStar Group, Madison Capital and PGIM are not offering their lower floor retail space at 875 North Michigan, which is 51% leased to tenants including the Cheesecake Factory and the North Face. Crane's Ali Maradi reported that McDonald's is closing down its U.S. offices this week as it prepares to inform corporate workers about layoffs as part of a broader restructuring. The Wall Street Journal first reported that the Chicago-based company said in an internal email last week to U.S. workers and some international staff members that they should work from home Monday through Wednesday so it can deliver staffing decisions virtually. The company asked workers to cancel all in-person meetings with vendors and other outside parties at its headquarters.
McDonald's declined to comment further to Cranes, and Marathi noted that the company has not indicated how many workers will be laid off. One worker told Cranes that corporate workers will be meeting with their supervisors over the next few days regardless of whether or not they'll be let go. In the meetings, they expect to be told whether they will be laid off, moved to a new position, or stay in the same role. They'll also find out if their teams will be reorganized as well. Back on January 6th, Cranes reported that McDonald's aimed to speed up the rate at which it opens restaurants, even as it said it planned to stop or deprioritize certain unspecified initiatives, which could result in job cuts. Marathi also reported that CEO Chris Kemzinski said in a message to workers at the time that such decisions would be finalized by April 3rd, with a message saying, quote, this will help us move faster as an organization while reducing our global costs and freeing up resources to invest in our growth. The message continued by saying, we will look to our strategy and our values to guide how we reach those decisions and support every impacted member of the company. Marathi reported that the company said that the new growth plan called Accelerating the Arches 2.0 would also create new leadership roles, better solve customer problems, push innovation out to markets, and reduce work to create efficiencies. Kemzinski said that many stores are operating at capacity, hence the new plan for growth. Marathi noted in reporting that McDonald's employed about 200,000 people in its corporate and other offices and company-owned restaurants at the end of 2021, more than 75 percent of whom were outside the U.S. Over 2 million people work in McDonald's restaurants around the world. Marathi also noted that the original Accelerating the Arches program that McDonald's introduced in November of 2020 focused on modernized marketing, a renewed commitment to its core products of burgers, chicken and coffee, and a focus on what was described as the three D's of digital ordering, delivery and drive through. The 2.0 version adds what was described as a fourth D, restaurant development, as well as an internal restructuring program. The company promoted four executives effective February 1st, specifically to address aspects of the restructuring. Find more reporting about Chicago-based McDonald's at chicagobusiness.com. That's Crane's Daily just for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's healthcare reporter, Katherine Davis. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.